Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Exodus. We'll be reading chapter 14, verses 15 to 21. We'll be looking at Exodus chapter 14. And for our New Testament passage, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Yes, sorry. Exodus 14, starting at verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water, so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so that neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. Let's now move to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, reading verses 1 to 4. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. The Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, good morning again. Let's pause once again just before we open the word to ask God's blessing. Father, we praise you, we thank you for this Sunday service where we have just baptized two individuals and we do ask and pray, Lord God, that you would be their protector, their refuge, uh, the one that they run to during both times of trial and times of joy. Father, show them even this week uh, that you are pleased, that you are a God who blesses and who loves to give. I pray for blessing over both Letitia and Jose. And now, Lord, as we open your word once again, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would come and add blessing and remind us perhaps of some things in your word that we have neglected or forgotten. For some of us, these will be brand new. We pray your spirit's presence in the name of Jesus. Amen. There are some events that are so momentous that they warrant more than just a single telling. For example, the Bible gives us not one, but four separate descriptions of the advent of Jesus Christ. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John. The coming of Jesus was so important that we have in our Bibles four separate records of it. Well, similarly, when God delivered his people at the Red Sea, a mere single record of that monumental event would not be enough. And so what we get is a prose account of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14, but we also have a poetic reflection on the events of the Red Sea in Exodus 15. Not to mention several other later passages in the Old Testament where the Red Sea event is further remembered and further celebrated. John Currid wrote a commentary on Exodus, and he has said this, The Red Sea crossing is the salient incident, most important incident, in the history of Israel. And so it's no wonder that we have in our Bibles multiple records of this single event. This morning we are focusing on the Exodus 14 prose account of the Red Sea. And we're going to parachute in here to Exodus 14:15. We'll have the verses on screen, but I hope you have your Bible and can open it and follow along. Exodus 14:15. At this point in the story, The Hebrew people are traveling now away from Egypt. So this is post-Passover. They are camped out now by the sea. And the people look up and they see Egypt's army approaching. And they are terrified. Exodus 14.15 has Yahweh, God of Israel, directing some censure at Moses. Notice this. Yahweh said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Isn't that an interesting thing for God to say? Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now the interesting thing here is that in the verses just before verse 15, Moses has not done any crying to Yahweh. And yet Yahweh says here to Moses, why do you cry to me? So we ask the question, what's going on here? Well, back at verse 10 of this chapter, uh, the people of Israel, if we notice there, the people of Israel did cry out to Yahweh. They cried out because the Egyptian army was coming closer and closer to where they were. And since there was such a close connection between the people who cried out And Moses, who was leading them, such a close connection between the people and Moses, Yahweh legitimately can say to Moses here, why do you cry to me? When that statement ultimately is directed over Moses' head to the people who were doing the crying. But note something very crucial and important here in verse 15, namely that Yahweh commands Forward movement. We need to see this, people of God. Yahweh, God of Israel, commands forward movement even while the people are crying out. Even while the people are disheartened and despairing because the Egyptian army was drawing near. Move forward, says Yahweh, even though you are almost paralyzed in fear. Did you know that sometimes God will command forward movement even in the midst 
of what might seem to us like impossible odds in the midst of a very disheartening situation. There's a time to cry out to the Lord and a time to simply move forward. Amen? Now, verses 16 and 17 have in them what I like to call the dual job descriptions, the dual job descriptions of Moses and Yahweh. Notice this. In the original Hebrew text, the first word of verse 16 is actually an emphatic you. You, Moses, it's literally what it says in the Hebrew, you, Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And then verse 17 begins in the Hebrew with an emphatic I. I, for my part, says Yahweh, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. And so we get this dual job description here of Moses and Yahweh. Each is going to play an important role in the events of the Red Sea. For his part, Moses is to play the part of Genesis agent at the sea. Genesis agent. What does this mean? Well, what we notice in these verses is that Moses is told to divide, notice, to divide the sea with his staff in hand. And the Hebrew word translated divide is the same word that was used back at Genesis 7:11 during the flood of Noah when God divided the fountains of the great deep in his judgment on humankind. Moses is to divide waters like God had done in Genesis 7 in order, ultimately, in order that Egypt would be judged. They will end up drowning in the Red Sea. And the people of Israel, says Yahweh in Exodus 14:16, notice this, will travel through the divided waters on dry ground. Now, the Hebrew behind the phrase dry ground is yet again a Genesis allusion. It alludes back to Genesis. In Genesis 1, God had separated the waters from dry ground as he was creating the world. So could it be then that the Red Sea story is to be read as some sort of fresh creative moment? Moses, who divides the waters from dry ground, is to play the part of creative agent in some way, shape, or form. Well, having looked at a little at Moses' job description, let's look more intently now at Yahweh's. Now, in the original Hebrew text, verse 17 starts with a phrase that is found in only two other places prior to verse 17. And those places are Genesis 6.17 and Genesis 9.9, both of which are during the, the, the flood story of Noah. Now the phrase in question translates literally as, listen carefully, and I, behold, I, and I, behold, I. God says, and I, behold, I, will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And I, 
Behold, I think of that phrase, people of God. That phrase beckons you and it beckons me and it beckoned Moses and Israel to do what? To focus squarely and resolutely on God. I look at me. Behold, I. The people here were despairing, weren't they? They were facing the seeming impossibility of escaping this approaching army, technologically advanced army of Pharaoh, who were coming now to kill them. And Yahweh says, I, behold, I. Look to me. Look at me. Focus your eyes on me. Watch me. Friend, when you are confronted with frightening circumstances, as some of you very well may be today, what is the optimum direction in which to look and focus? In a Godward direction. Amen? To look at God and to see what he will do. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in to the sea after them. And what? Does God say here, I'm sending the Egyptians into the sea for the primary reason that you, Israel, will be released from the Egyptians? Is it deliverance of Israel that is Yahweh's primary focus here in sending Egypt into the sea? No. Watch this. Very important. What Yahweh says is, what your God says is, and I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. We've dealt with that phrase in weeks past. When what? When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. It's very interesting here. And very instructive to us that what God was after primarily in drowning Egypt in the sea, was his own glory. To quote Jonathan Edwards, God is uppermost in God's affections. I'll say that again. God is uppermost in God's affections. And that is good news for you and I Because as John Piper is fond of saying, when God is glorified, his kids are benefited. Amen? Amen. Let's go to verses 19 and 20 now where some final positioning happens just prior to the spectacle at the sea. Notice this. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt, who were lagging behind, and the host of Israel. 
and there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Now, the Hebrew of these verses is very difficult. The Coles Notes version of these verses is simply this. God now moves from front to back, from his position before the people now to a new position behind his people. And God installs darkness between his people and the Egyptian army so that now Egypt cannot see Israel. For the Egyptians, think of them, put put yourself in their shoes, for the Egyptians who saw this darkness, it would be a fresh reminder of the ninth and tenth plagues where darkness had figured in so prominently. For the Egyptians, this darkness was a bad thing. Maybe it meant a new judgment of some kind was just over the horizon for them. But for the Hebrew people, for the Hebrew people, soon to be the nation of Israel, for the Hebrews who had the story of creation, they knew that creation itself, if we remember the Genesis record, creation itself had come into being just after the darkness that had been over the face of the deep. Maybe God would now work a fresh, creative something which would come after this darkness. And that's precisely what happens. Exodus 14.21 is loaded up purposely with creation terminology. This verse has the words, notice, sea and wind and night and waters all of which appear in the Genesis 1 creation story. And we also have Yahweh here dividing waters from land, just as he had done in the creation of the world. Let's read Exodus 14.21. Then Moses stretched his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. To quote a scholar named Bernard Oak, he says this, The crossing of the sea is a microcosmic reenactment of the original act of creation. I'll read that one more time. The crossing of the sea is a microcosmic reenactment of the original act of creation. Yes. Life would come for Israel out of this moment just as life had come at the creation. The Red Sea, if you want, is the birth canal of the nation of Israel. Now focus with me for a moment on that sentence in verse 21. The Lord drove the sea back. Who drove the sea back? The Lord did. Your God and my God heaped the waters of the sea into walls in miraculous fashion. So what is it that you face in your life right now? This is your God who stacked up the waters like this. John Currid says this. I love this challenge. He says, dare we think 
that the God who divided the Red Sea is powerless to intervene in our lives. That he is unable to care for us. Do we think, says Currid, that he is somehow shackled? My counsel to you this day and this week is to run and flee to the God who drove the sea back if you are up against it. If you're up against frightening, apparently, what look like to you hopeless circumstances. Are you with me this morning? Run to him this week. Let's go to verses 22 and 23. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. There's our creational terminology again. Israel is becoming a new creation here at the sea. They went went in on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, I want to say this. Because of the contexts where the Hebrew word translated wall, because of the context where that word appears in the Old Testament, we can be very sure that what's being described in Exodus 14.22 are large walls, high walls, like walls that would surround a city. These walls of water that were on either side of the Hebrew people were massive. Now, we know this story really well, but just imagine this with me for a moment, if you would. Try to put yourself in the shoes of these Hebrew people who just set foot onto the seabed, and there are these walls of water on either side of you. You had to have faith to start walking across the seabed in between these high walls of water, And guess what? That's exactly what Hebrews 11.29 confirms to us. It says this, Hebrews 11.29, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. By faith. But where Egypt was concerned, the situation was very different. Exodus 14.23 says, The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. What drove the Egyptians into the sea was not faith in Yahweh, but rather what drove them was a sort of deranged obsession with ending Hebrew lives. I love the way Nahum Sarna, he's a commentator on Exodus, he describes Egypt's rush into the sea in this way. He says, impelled by evil purposes, their judgment deranged by their brutal obstinacy, the Egyptian forces plunge headlong into the turbulent waters. So Israel goes out into the seabed by faith, But Egypt scrambles forward after Israel in hubris, in pride, galloping straight toward their ruin. Verse 24. Oh, this gets good now. Verse 24. And in the morning watch, so 
at some point between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., Yahweh, Yahweh in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down. God looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Now, how shall we understand this look of Yahweh that is enough to throw the Egyptians into a panic? I think we get help on what this look of Yahweh looked like, pardon the pun, from Psalm 77, verses 17 and 18. These are verses that reflect back on the Red Sea moment. Does this describe the look of Yahweh when the psalmist says, here's what happened at the Red Sea, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. That's a rather scary description of a terrific electrical storm that God orchestrated at the Red Sea, which maybe explains the panic of the Egyptians. Bolts of lightning and thunderclaps that shook the earth with terrific winds. The Egyptian horses are starting to get anxious, and order in the ranks is beginning to disintegrate. Only 14 verses prior to Exodus 14.24 we notice it was the people of Israel who had been panicking. (laughs) But now at verse 24, when Yahweh looks on Egypt, it's Egypt who are thrown into a panic, even with their state-of-the-art chariots and their innovative war strategies, now they find themselves gravely outclassed by Yahweh, the divine warrior and Lord of heaven and earth. They are gravely outclassed now. Let's go to verse 25. Now Yahweh either clogs the Egyptian chariot wheels or he turns aside the Egyptian chariot wheels or he removes the wheels altogether. There is debate as to how to translate the Hebrew best into English here. In any case, note well, friends, your God can exercise his sovereign power, should he desire, even over the wheels of a man-made device. Did you know that? At the end of verse 25, we have an important confession of sorts now that comes out of the mouths of the Egyptians. As they panic with their hampered chariots, they say, Let us flee from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. (laughs) Yahweh had desired glory, hadn't he? At this moment at the sea, according to verse 18, and now he's getting it. The Egyptians recognize the insurmountable power of Israel's God, Yahweh, but unfortunately for them, their confession does not get them off the hook. Verse 26. Egypt 
fighting now to get out off the seabed, back onto land. And that very moment, Yahweh says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. Verse 27, Moses obeys, and it says, the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Cornelis Houtman wrote a commentary on Exodus, and I think he gives us an excellent, accurate description of what was happening here at verse 27. He says this, The Egyptians fled pell-mell, colliding with the onrushing waves. They are knocked and pulled along, and later their bodies wash up on shore. Verse 27 tells us that Yahweh threw, notice that word, he threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Now this is very interesting here. The Hebrew verb that is translated through is very interesting. At Nehemiah 5.13, the same verb describes shaking a garment. Sort of like when you have a throw rug that's dusty and you take it on your porch and you shake it to get rid of the dust. That's kind of the action that's being uh, described here. So at the Red Sea, Yahweh shook off Egypt like one would shake dust off a rug. And notice also the last part of verse 28, where we are told that so comprehensive was Yahweh's victory over Egypt at the sea that not one of them remained. Notice that phrase very carefully. There's a bit of humor here in the text. So not one in all the host of Pharaoh remained. Well, interestingly enough, the phrase, not one of them remained, was used at Exodus 8.31 and again at Exodus 10.19 when Yahweh had removed both flies and locusts from the land so that not one of them remained. So now he removes Egyptians so that not one of them remained. It's almost as if the Egyptian army is being compared to the flies and locusts. At the Red Sea, Yahweh easily shakes off these pests so that not one of them remained. Friends, as Egypt had chosen the water of the Nile to decimate the firstborn of Israel, so now Yahweh chose water in his retributive justice to decimate Israel. Egypt. Let's go finally to verses 29 through 31. Verse 29 and 30 should probably be taken, I think, as a summary of what's just taken place. So the idea is this. On that great day at the Red Sea, here's what went down. The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And then Exodus 14.30, Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Notice verse 30. Who was it who saved Israel at the Red Sea? It was Yahweh who had done this. Yahweh had done this. John Durham, in his commentary on Exodus, really drives this point home to us when he says this. Yahweh rescued Israel that day from the power of the Egyptians. The manner of his doing is incidental to the fact 
that Yahweh is the one who made the rescue. Not tides, not storms, not bad planning, not tactical error, not bad luck or good luck, but Yahweh. Yahweh did this. We're reminded here of Isaiah 43.11. I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no, no Savior. Every shred of praise was due to Yahweh for the saving might that he exercised at the Red Sea. A saving might that became crystal clear now as the Hebrew people scanned the seashore with their eyes. What did they see? Walter Brueggemann describes the scene very well when he says this. All that is visible are dead Egyptians. Egyptian soldiers, Egyptian horses, Egyptian chariots, Egyptian power, and Egyptian arrogance. What's really interesting here is that Exodus 14.30 literally says in the Hebrew, Israel saw Egypt dead on the seashore. Egyptians is like how we like to gloss it over into English, but literally the Hebrew says here, Israel saw Egypt dead. This was the point at which, friends, Egypt became dead to Israel and Israel was just beginning her new life. All praise to Yahweh who took his people through this birth canal. And then we have verse 31. Israel saw the great hand, literally in the Hebrew, they saw the great hand that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So the people feared Yahweh and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Now note here that the people fear Yahweh and believe in Yahweh, first of all. Notice that they fear Yahweh and they believe in Yahweh. We know that this faith and belief in Yahweh was not an unassailable faith. Why? Because, of course, later on in the story, the people are going to lapse into unbelief at the golden calf. But for now, their faith at the Red Sea is going to issue into singing in Exodus 15, which Ed, Lord willing, is going to lead us through uh, next week. And we need to know that Exodus 15 does center on praise to God. If we read that chapter, we'll go through it next week. It does center on praise to God and God alone. Even though here at the end of Exodus 14, we have this interesting little notice that the people believed in God and in his servant Moses. What does this mean exactly? That the people believed in Moses. Probably this means only that the people trusted in the human being Moses, because he represented God to them. Moses had been commissioned by God to speak in God's name, so the people trusted him for that reason. This wasn't any sort of spiritual belief in Moses here. Rather, it's a simple trust in Moses as the one God appointed to be the mediator between God and people. That's probably what this means here. Well, as we close this off today, I want to bring us now to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 9. 
which records for us the famous transfiguration of Jesus Christ on the mountain. And who's with with Jesus at the transfiguration? I just gave it away. Moses is there, interestingly enough. And Elijah is also there. They, They appear in glorious splendor and they talk with Jesus. And according to Luke 9.31, what Moses and Elijah talk about with Jesus is, listen, the exodus of Jesus. The word that's usually translated as something like departure in Luke 9.31 is actually the Greek word exodos, exodus. The exodus of Jesus that Moses and Elijah discussed with Jesus was going to happen in Jerusalem. The cross would happen in the environs of Jerusalem. Just as Yahweh had worked the spectacle at the sea which served to liberate captives from Egypt, so Jesus would work a new exodus, his cross, which would liberate people enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. It's very interesting. Galatians 4, verses 3 through 5, uses Exodus language. Paul uses Exodus language to describe Jesus and his work. It says this, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved, Exodus word, to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem, first time God is called redeemer is in the Exodus story, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came down as Yahweh had come down at the Exodus to redeem slaves. Amen? This morning we were thrilled to baptize Letitia and Jose. Letitia and Jose are two people who have crossed over, to quote the Exodus language of John 5.24, they have crossed over from death to eternal life. And in obedience to the one whose exodus has liberated them, Letitia and Jose entered this morning the Red Sea of Baptism. And the Apostle Paul does call the Red Sea a baptism in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 2. Letitia and Jose entered the death waters. Did you know that baptismal waters are death waters? They entered the death waters where symbolically they declared the fact that they have left behind them their enslavement to sin, death, and the devil. They have buried the old so that they now walk in newness of life as God's new creations in Christ Jesus. Letitia and Jose are like the rest of us who've been baptized. They now live as we live, somewhere in between the Red Sea of baptism and the promised land of our eternal Sabbath rest. We're on the journey together. 
we're in the desert together. May the church, may we who have been washed in the blood of the Passover lamb and drenched in the Red Sea of baptism, may we persevere in this desert together. This week, may we take time to spur one another on to holiness as we live in anticipation of our final exodus. Let's observe a brief moment of prayerful silence, and then I'll close us off in prayer. Father, we praise you and thank you once again for supplying for us manna and quail, providing for us in our journey. We are people not baptized into Moses, but baptized into Jesus Christ. In fact, baptized into Father, Son, and Spirit, into the Trinity. We thank you that we have the whole revelation of Scripture. We don't have a partial revelation, but a complete revelation, which shows us your story and how our story fits into your story. We thank you that your promises are always true. You are always 110% good on your word, and we thank you for that, Lord. I pray for each of the people here this morning that as we walk into another week, that we would remember the story, how we fit into it, and the power that you have supplied through your Holy Spirit that helps us in our everyday lives. Walk with us close in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, yeah, Jose. Come forward, young man. Congratulations on being baptized, and we're just uh, happy that you were here today with us and that this moment has come in your life, and we just want to give the Lord praise. Your benediction for today. May God be in your head and in your understanding. May God be in your eyes and in your looking. May God be in your mouth and in your speaking. May God be in your heart and in your thinking. Go now and serve your God in the confidence of his love and grace. Amen.